There's a wall calendar that hangs behind me in my home office. Uh, it's a Ted Lasso calendar. Sometimes I have to take it down uh, because there's an inappropriate quote from or about Roy Kent, who swears a lot, for those of you who aren't familiar, that just doesn't need to make its way into my Zoom meetings. But back in March, it was this, football is life, from the mouth of Danny Rojas. I resonate with that. I I love football. I've played it since I could walk. I've watched it since I was allowed to watch TV. As a seven-year-old, I remember being woken up by my brother at 1 a.m. Hong Kong time to watch the 1990 World Cup final in Italy between West Germany, which is the team that we supported, and Diego Maradona's Argentina. I remember also watching in summer 2002 in a Ugandan cafe as Germany, the team I still supported, lost to Brazil, Ronaldo's Brazil. I have so many memories and moments that are attached to the game of football. Even to this day, to this day, one of the most life-giving activities I do is play rec league soccer once a week with a team that I've been with for almost 10 years now. We have won back-to-back championships, and this summer we are gunning for a three-peat the, uh, the, the prize for winning is a, is a beer glass. So, like I said, a rec league. But uh, for me, as for Danny Rojas, football is life. What is life to you? What brings you joy? What makes you come alive? What do you look forward to in your week, your day, your month, your, your year? Is it a person? Is it a relationship? Is it an activity like soccer is for me, a time where you get to do something that just fills your cup? <laughs> Thank you, JR. Is it something you long for? Vacation? A nap? Deeper rest? Is it a, a vision or a mission for a better world that motivates you, that drives you, that compels you, that gets you out of bed every day? What is life to you? What are you drawn to? Now let me ask the question from a different angle. What gets sold to you as life? What gets packaged as life, but the product doesn't match the promise? You know, that's kind of what advertising can do, right? If you buy this, your life will look like that, or you'll, you'll get to be with someone like that, or you'll be cool like that. Uh, clickbait, too, you know, those, those headlines that are phrased in just such a way that you find yourself wanting to know the answer, and then when you click through, contains very little substance at all. The lies we've been examining in our current series, Truth and Lies, pretend to be life. They get packaged as life. We've sought to examine these lies. We've sought to examine these counterfeit truths. We're tempted to believe and explore their origins in order to confront them with the truth of God. And the statement I'm going to talk about today is this. You are what you do. The message that you are only as valuable as what you do, that whatever activity, whatever productivity, whatever job, whatever achievements you can claim responsibility for, that is the sum of your worth. That is the totality of who you are. That is the substance of your identity. That to be someone, to be something, to have worth, you have to prove yourself, and you prove yourself by being busy. The thing about the myth of you are what you do is that there are, there's both an internal voice and there are external voices that tell you this. 
You probably know the external voices. They may be literal. They may be a boss or a client or a teacher or coworkers. It might be the sheer amount of work you have to do that just means you really don't have time or energy for anything else. When work is all you do or when work takes up most of the hours of your week or even when work is really meaningful, it's easy to understand how you are what you do becomes, to use Pastor Andrea's metaphor from the first week of this series, the earworm that gets stuck in your head. The, uh, the natural analogy for me is the tape that plays, but I know that's outdated and probably irrelevant for anyone under the age of, like, 30. But when those external voices tell us that we are what we do, there can be a dehumanizing and objectifying nature to them as if we become a means to an end. And that might, might not be said explicitly, but the implication is that if you aren't doing what you're asked to do, you are worth less. And if you hear that line often enough, if you receive that message often enough, it's easy to start believing it, to internalize it. We construct an identity that is based on what we do. This is real common here in D.C. And if you think about it, it comes out of the need we have for approval and affirmation. Okay? We notice how people loved us or appreciated us or praised us when we were getting things done, making things happen, from as early as taking your first steps as a toddler to getting good grades uh, in school to winning a game, and we come to think that we are only unique and loved and worthwhile when we perform well, when we're successful, that anything short of perfect performance means that maybe I'm undeserving of love. Our resume-building, access-seeking culture of D.C. is saturated with this production-based understanding of love and identity. We have a city full of insecure people who are seeking to prove themselves so they can feel loved. But the thing is, if your identity and worth is based on performance, you're only as good as your last outing. If your identity and worth is based on productivity, there's no room for rest. In Deuteronomy 5, God gave these instructions to the people of Israel through Moses. He said, keep the Sabbath day and treat it as holy, exactly as the Lord your God commanded. Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Don't do any work on it. Not you, your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, your oxen or donkeys or any of your animals or the immigrant who is living among you so that your male and female servants can rest just like you. Keep the Sabbath holy is one of the Ten Commandments, one of the, the cardinal laws God gave to God's people in the Old Testament along with don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't testify falsely against your neighbor, don't desire what is not yours, Honor your parents. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Don't make any idols for yourselves and don't have any gods before God. Now, what's interesting about the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath holy, is that uh, it's probably the one folks think of least as a commandment, more of a recommendation or a suggestion. And yet here in Deuteronomy 5, it gets the most words of all of the commandments. In verse 15 
Moses gives the why. Remember to the people of Israel, remember that you were a slave in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That's why the Lord your God commands you to keep the Sabbath day. The book of Exodus tells us that the the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. 400 years. They were an enslaved labor force subjugated by the Egyptian empire made to build cities and monuments for Pharaoh. But it started with bricks. Their work became their identity. They were slaves who made bricks. Their outer voices became inner voices. It is so easy to internalize our own oppression. It's so easy to forget who we are. From the beginning of creation in Genesis, when human beings were made, they were given work to do. To have dominion over all that has been created, to exercise wise sovereignty over the things entrusted to them. Now, see, work isn't bad in and of itself. We were made to have meaningful work to do, but this work was not intended to be onerous or oppressive. It certainly wasn't supposed to be like it was for the Israelites in slavery, a subjugation an abuse of power, an objectification of those made in God's image to be no more than a means to an end. The Ten Commandments can seem restrictive. Things you have to obey. And it's easy for us to think that, you know, anything coming from God is just trying to restrict us, trying to control our fun, shut, shut it down. We want to be free to do what we want. But these Ten Commandments were intended to be, especially for people emerging from external oppression and still trying to shake off the chains of internalized oppression, they were intended to be more like ten freedoms, ways to live in community outside of bondage. It's like God is saying, let me show you a new way of living. Let me show you a better way to be. And one of those gifts was to remember the Sabbath and to treat it as holy. One day a week, away from work. Can you imagine the shift, the paradigm shift for a people who are used to being forced to work every day, every week, every year for 400 years, for generations? Can you imagine what it would be like for your work and your activity and your productivity and uh, to be your identity and your worth and your value? Well, <laughs> of course we can. We, we just talked about it. We We see it all around us, and maybe we see it even in our own lives. For us here in D.C., in the 21st century, the same commandment to keep the Sabbath holy can be a freedom. Maybe not from a life of, of literal bricks and chains, but from the bricks and chains of perpetual activity. From feeling as if changing the world depends on you and you alone, or as if you are the only one who cares about this cause, or the only one who can make a difference in this person's life. This is a freedom, and it is the freedom of God's world. We've talked about Sabbath a lot here at Christ City. We've preached sermons on it. We've done a whole series on it. We've created a meditation podcast on it. We've written a guide to Sabbath, and we've practiced it together communally. So I'm not going to retread old ground, although we will post links to all of those resources. I want you to practice Sabbath. I want all of us to, to practice Sabbath. In fact, I look at us taking next Sunday off as a practice of Sabbath for us. But what lies beneath the practice and the principle of Sabbath is this. In the words of Rabbi Abraham Heschel, on the Sabbath, we especially care 
for the seed of eternity planted in the soul. The world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. The world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. Our being precedes our doing. Our identity precedes our work. Before we worked, we were. Before we do, we are. Before Genesis 1.28, when humanity was given work to do, came Genesis 1.27, when human beings were created in God's image. Before you are a student, before you are a teacher or a consultant or a civil servant or a lawyer or a doctor or an organizer or an activist or a chemist or a linguist or an administrator or a writer or a creator, before you are an actor on the stage of life, you are a being made in the image of God. And according to Genesis 126, you are a being made out of the love and intention of God. In chapter 3 of Luke's gospel, when Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized at the Jordan River, we're told that there was a voice from heaven that said, You are my son, whom I dearly love. With you I am well pleased. This is the foundation of Jesus' identity. God's son, beloved by God, pleasing to God. Before he had healed anyone, before he had cast out any demons, before he had preached any sermons, before he had done any miracles, before he had raised anyone from the dead, before he had trained his disciples, before he had publicly stood up to those who were abusing their power, before he called out injustice, before he had been raised from the dead, before all of that, Jesus was known and loved by God. Before any of our doing. We are known and loved by God. Our souls belong to someone else. Since it's the last Sunday of Pride Month, let me direct this particularly to my queer siblings. I know for so many of you coming from homes and churches where who you are or who you are attracted to were or still are met with condemnation, disappointment, and shame, Feeling pride in who you are can seem far off. You're just trying not to feel the weight of not being who those you love wanted you to be. And still, as you are, you are known and loved by God. Your soul belongs to God. I pray that you know that truth that you experience that liberation, that you are able to feel that love so tangibly in every cell of your body. For in the words of second century theologian Irenaeus, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. To all of us, the Dutch theologian Henry Nouwen would say this, you are not what you do although you do a lot. You are not what you have collected in terms of friendships and connections, although you might have many. You are not the popularity that you have received. You are not the success of your work. You are not what people say about you, whether they speak well or whether they speak poorly about you. All these things that keep you quite busy 
quite occupied and often quite preoccupied are not telling the truth about who you are. I'm here to remind you in the name of God that you are the beloved daughters and sons of God. And that God says to you, I have called you from all eternity. And you are engraved from all eternity in the palms of my hands. You are mine. You belong to me and I love you with an everlasting love. You are not what you do. Your activity, your productivity, your profession, your output, they do not define who you are as much as the voices around you or the voices inside you try to convince you otherwise. You are not what you do. And yet, what you do does matter. What you do does matter. I mean this in the context of your work, but I mean it far more broadly in the context of your actions in this life. See, what we do is not who we are, but what we do reveals who we are. Belief is not just intellectual assent. It is trust that is revealed by what we do. To believe is to act as if something is true. It's not an exercise in gritting my teeth to drum up an emotional sensation. It's a reminder to act as if it's all true, as if what Jesus says is true, as if I am made in the image of God, as if others are made in the image of God, as if we all are deeply loved by God, as if we are all defined not by what we do, but that what we do does matter. Our actions show what we believe is real. If I tell my wife, I love her, but I'm never willing to give up my comfort for her good. I probably don't really love her. If I say I believe in justice, but I never lift a finger to do anything, I may need to revise my statement. What good is it if people say they have faith but do nothing to show it? Wrote James, the brother of Jesus. Imagine a brother or sister who is naked and never has enough food to eat. What if one of you said, go in peace, stay warm, have a nice meal, thoughts and prayers? I added that one. But what good is it if you don't actually give them what their body needs? In the same way, faith is dead when it doesn't result in faithful activity. God didn't just tell us we're loved with letters in the sky. God showed us how much we are loved in the person of Jesus Christ who gave up his divine nature to to live among us, who confined himself to a human body to bring the beloved life to earth, who squeezed this eternal, infinite self into time and space to demonstrate how to live the beloved life and who gave up his perfect life for us on the cross to make a way for us to see and understand how truly loved we really are. Our actions reveal our identity. What we do and how we do it reveals who we are. When I find myself, when I catch myself chasing affirmation and approval through work, and it is, an, it is a when, it's not an if. When I find myself chasing affirmation and approval through work, or when I find myself crafting and projecting an identity based on accomplishments or achievement, in those moments when I catch myself, when I come to, I'm undone 
And it's not because of shame or guilt or having failed again or having not lived up to the person I could be. I'm undone by the love and compassion of a God who invites me again to find my footing, to find my center, to find my rooting in God's love again. The words that God spoke to his son Jesus, you are mine, I love you, with you I am well pleased. These words grant identity, right? These words speak of home. These words tell you where you belong and who you belong to. We seek those words too. We desire to hear them. We glean affirmation from them. We wish we heard them more often. Maybe from your father or your mother. You are mine. I love you. With you, I am well pleased. Maybe from a, your husband or your wife, your significant other, or even an ex, you are mine. I love you. With you, I am well pleased. Maybe from an older brother or sister, you are mine. I love you. With you, I'm well pleased. You know, maybe that's why we work so hard and so much and so long in some form or other, from some person or other, a a boss, a colleague, a teacher, we seek these identity-affirming words. You are mine. I love you. With you, I am well pleased. But the only person who will tell it to us in a way that will bring lasting peace and assurance to the very core of our being is God. Maybe you aren't seeking God, or maybe you wouldn't call yourself a a follower of Jesus, or or you've drifted away, but, but you too know in your bones that longing for affirmation, which you've sought by throwing yourself into work, or throwing your, you, yourself into the arms of the next guy or girl or by crafting an identity that seems formidable, but you're struggling under the weight of holding it all together, like surface pressure. This facade that people think is you, but you know deep in your heart it's not even close to being true. Certainly not close to where you want to be. Friends, our Creator longs to be in relationship with you. The, the one who loves you cares for you. The God who knew you even before you were a productive member of society. Before you did anything. Before you were formed in your mother's womb, this God yearns to establish you in the unshakable and consistent and stable foundation of God's love. And you have a choice. Remember, what you do matters. You can either accept the invitation or you can reject it. You can receive the truth or you can keep the lie track going. You can choose to believe that you are loved by God and live as if it's true, or you can say, no thanks. Go back to the grind. You can listen to God and be reminded of who you really are, be accepted just as you are, or you can double down on your effort, your grit, your hard work, to prove to yourself, to prove yourself to those who may never be satisfied. You have a choice. You are not what you do, and what you do matters.
Will you pray with me?